from the FLI Audio Files. I'm Arielle Kahn with the Future of Life Institute. This year, I've had the tremendous privilege to attend discussions at the United Nations in New York, where well over 100 delegates from around the world have been hard at work drafting the text for a treaty that will finally ban nuclear weapons. In fact, the final text of the treaty is expected to be completed by July 7. That means that as of this summer, it would be officially illegal on an international stage for any country participating in the ban to have anything to do with nuclear weapons. However, while the UN may be in the final stages of negotiating a treaty, this was by no means a quick process, and no one expects nuclear weapons to just disappear overnight once it's signed. There will still be a lot more work before we can achieve the ultimate goal of a world free of nuclear weapons. And nuclear weapons aren't the only weapons the UN considers. They've banned chemical weapons, biological weapons, landmines, cluster munitions, and now they're also considering lethal autonomous weapons systems, which are systems that are especially of interest for FLI. So how does a weapon go from being one of the most feared to being banned? And then what happens once the weapon is finally banned? To discuss these questions, Miriam Strike and Richard Moyes have both kindly joined the podcast today. Miriam is currently Programs Director at Pax, which is a Dutch peace organization operating in 15 conflict areas. Miriam started her work as a peace activist during the war in Bosnia and continued to support peace processes and activists in numerous conflict-affected states. She played a leading role in the campaign banning cluster munitions and developed global campaigns to prohibit financial investments in producers of cluster munitions and nuclear weapons and led a team working on humanitarian disarmament at Pax. Richard is the Managing Director of Article 36, which is a UK-based NGO working to prevent harm caused by certain weapons. Richard has worked closely with the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, he helped found the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots, and he coined the phrase meaningful human control regarding autonomous weapons. Before establishing Article 36, Richard was influential in the development of the 2008 Convention on Cluster Munitions and his previous work has involved landmine clearance and explosive ordnance disposal operations. Richard and Miriam, thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Ariel. So I would like to start, I think, with the nuclear negotiations that are happening now. The UN is currently working on drafting text for a treaty that will officially ban nuclear weapons. That's been a very long process, and I know you both have been involved and I was curious if you could talk a little bit about what you're hoping will come of the treaty. We know that the United States and Russia and China probably aren't going to sign on, along with the other nuclear states. So what is the goal of the treaty? Richard, you were actually at the negotiations. Why don't we start with you? Sure. Thanks, Ariel. I think what we're fundamentally seeing here is a process of bringing international law into alignment with sort of straightforward moral and humanitarian standards. The other weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons and biological weapons have already been prohibited, but nuclear weapons somehow have persisted in something of a legal limbo over recent decades. And in many ways, I think this is because of political power dynamics internationally, that some of the most powerful countries in the world possess nuclear weapons. Now, the relationship between that power and the possession of nuclear weapons is perhaps complicated and contentious, but somehow that configuration has essentially stopped the international legal regime from treating nuclear weapons in a, in a straightforward manner. Yet this process really came out of rigorous consideration of the humanitarian impact that would come from 
the use of nuclear weapons, from the use of a single nuclear weapon that would potentially kill hundreds of thousands of people in an urban area or a populated area, up to the use of multiple nuclear weapons, which could have devastating impacts for, well, for human society and for the environment as a whole. And so looked at from the starting point of that humanitarian impact, from the sort of catastrophic humanitarian consequences, it becomes pretty straightforward, I think, that by all the legal measures that have been used in the past, these weapons should be considered illegal because their effects simply cannot be contained or managed in a way that that avoids massive humanitarian suffering, massive impact on, on civilians and the like. And so in a way, this process is an assertion of the of the validity and the primacy of the of the legal regime and of the legal principles that have developed over the last hundred years in international law, governing weapons and conflict, and saying, okay, these political dynamics may be what they are, but these legal principles need to maintain and need to be asserted regardless of that. And if some states and those states that have nuclear weapons are not prepared to sign up to that for now, we have accepted that from the beginning of this process, I think. But at the same time, it's a process that's changing the landscape against which those states continue to maintain and assert the validity of their maintenance of nuclear weapons. And by changing that legal background and in a way, a political background that comes with that, I think we're potentially in a position to put much more pressure on those states to to move towards disarmament as a long term agenda. I mean, I think we shouldn't have any illusions that this is going to suddenly transform into disarmament in one or more states. But progressively over time, this legal shift will make, I think, a fundamental difference to how arguments and perceptions of nuclear weapons play out and ultimately about how political decisions get made about nuclear weapons, which is the the critical issue here. I very much agree with what Richard said. Um, And at a time when you see an erosion of international norms, as, as we see nowadays, I think it's quite astonishing that in, well, less than two weeks time, we see an international treaty banning nuclear weapons. And on your question, what this treaty will bring, to me, it will first and foremost bring back the notion that we're speaking about weapons here. Like for too long, nuclear weapons were some kind of like mythical, symbolic weapons that were spoken about at NPT and many other fora. But we never spoke about what these weapons actually do and whether we think that's in legal, but also in moral terms, acceptable or not. So this treaty actually brings back the notion of what does this weapon do and do we want that? So I think that's that's first. And second, what it also brings this treaty is a sense of collective security. So for too long, the real debate about nuclear weapons was uh, held by only a few states and the others basically had to wait. And so what we see now is that like more than 100 states actually take the power back and get together and make a statement and, and even make it into a legal treaty. Like this is this is what we, the majority of states, want. And this is how we see collective security. And it also brings, uh, perhaps as as the last thing, it also brings kind of like democratization of security policy. So what you actually see now in New York is a a process that was brought about by several states, but also by NGOs, by the ICRC and other actors. And especially when it comes to, to speaking about nuclear weapons, I think it's so important that it's actually citizens and citizens groups again speaking about nukes and whether we think that's acceptable or not so i think it's a huge huge establishment on on various levels miriam i think i want to follow up with you on this one i know pox especially has done a lot of work on the financial impact that a ban could have on creating nuclear weapons is that anything you can follow up on 
Yeah, sure. It's it's also perhaps a bit of an answer to your question, like what will a treaty change? Now we've been involved, Richard, uh, me as well, on um, an international treaty to uh, ban custom munitions. And that's basically how I started to work also on disinvestment and weapons. So we started to invest, like, what are the producers of cluster munitions? Who is investing in cluster munitions? And then we started year by year documenting this and also campaigning on this issue. And our work was supported by the, the Cluster Munition Convention because it had Article 1C, which said states should not assist in any way by the development or production of use of cluster munitions. Now, over time, NGOs like PAX, but also others, but also states have repeatedly said like, well, we see, we interpreted the word assistance also as financial investment. So the norm grew that financial institutions, but also states, should not invest in, in producers of cluster munitions. And we had some success. We saw the capital shrinking, but we also, in the end, had, for example, also a defense company saying like, well, we will stop producing cluster munitions because it, we're getting into trouble with financial institutions and financial investments. So as soon as we started to get involved in, in ICANN, the International Coalition to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, we thought we should also do the same for nuclear weapons. So we started yearly research called Don't Bank on the Bomb. So it's a yearly global report on the financing of uh, nuclear weapons producers. And for example, for the period 2013-2016, we documented that there was more than half a trillion US dollars invested in 27 companies of nuclear weapons. And we looked at more than 500 financial institutions, so bank, pension funds, insurance companies, and we already listed 319 financial institutions investing in nuclear weapon producers. So there is huge capital involved, and it's also capital that is needed for these nuclear weapon producers and contractors. So it's a direct way to influence. And especially now when you see a lot of modernization going on with nuclear weapon arsenals and and plans thereof, we think this can be a a powerful tool. And we also think it's powerful because it's something that citizens, that clients can actually influence. It's a not with my money, not in my name argument that citizens and clients can make. And speaking about the treaty, which is currently being negotiated in New York, in the treaty text so far, it says again, as it is with the Cluster Mission Convention, that states should not assist. Unfortunately, there is no explicit mention of a prohibition on financial assistance, but we have heard a lot of states echoing that assistance in their idea also means financial uh, investments. So hopefully this will also change not only the discourse a bit, but also the actual capital that goes into nuclear weapon producers. Okay, thank you. So as you mentioned, you've both worked on the cluster munitions ban and you're both now working on the nuclear weapons ban, which is hopefully about to be completed. So I'm going to want to compare how autonomous weapons are similar and different to both of those cases. But first, Richard, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what autonomous weapons systems are, what you mean by meaningful human control, Just give us a little bit of a background and maybe also why we're worried about these types of weapons. Yeah, thanks, Ariel. I mean, I wonder if I might just backtrack a little bit at first when just because your introduction situated this conversation about autonomous weapons in the context of cluster munitions and nuclear weapons. And I think just an important thing 
to recognize in all of these contexts is that these weapons don't prohibit themselves. And on all of these issues, on anti-personnel mines before that, weapons have been prohibited because a diverse range of actors from civil society and from international organizations and from states have worked together to document problems and to frame problems, identify problems, and to develop the sort of legal responses. So I'm just saying that by way of introduction to where we are on autonomous weapons, which is still at a relatively, I think, early stage of the debate. I mean, obviously, by comparison with nuclear weapons, which have been understood to be problematic for a very long period of time now, autonomous weapons is really an issue of new and emerging technologies and the challenges that new and emerging technologies present to society, uh, particularly when they, they're emerging in a military sphere and in a sphere which is essentially about how we're allowed to kill each other or, or how we're allowed to use technologies to kill each other. And so this particular issue has certain distinct challenges because of that future-orientated basis to the, to the work. But essentially, autonomous weapons is a movement in technology. It's an idea in the movement of technology to a point where we will see essentially computers and machines making decisions about where to apply force, about who to kill when we're talking about people or what objects to destroy when we're talking about material. Now, choosing is in itself a, a slightly loaded, almost human sounding word, but essentially it's that trajectory and that movement that we're concerned about here, that we're going to enter a phase of technology where essentially decision-making over life or death matters and about where force is applied is essentially in the hands of computers and sensors, sensors, computers, and the algorithms within those computers that are designed to make these kinds of targeting decisions. And, and in that movement, we're in many respects seeing a, a stepping back of human decision-making or the sort of proximity of human decision-making to the application of force. Now, already in use of force, of course, there's distance between people applying force in certain contexts and the actual effects that are being experienced. But I think we see in the, in the movement towards greater autonomy in, in weapon systems, a very dangerous sort of threshold that's being approached, whereby a significant amount of essentially moral power is potentially being invested in technology where it should rightly sit with humans. What is the extent of us using autonomous weapons today versus what we're anticipating will be designed in the future? Well, I, I don't want to sound dull, but it depends a lot on your definition, of course. But to go back a little bit, I think, I mean, if you, if you look back and you see how much effort, well, how much effort we have to pay to prohibit nuclear weapons, and it would have been so much easier if they were never, of course, developed, let alone used at all. So in that sense, I see a comparison that if you look at nukes as being, as the future of life quoted earlier, like the second generation of warfare. So the first generation being gunpowder, the second nuclear weapons, and then the third generation is going to be a leaf autonomous weapon systems or killer robots. Then I'm still in a way, a little bit of an optimist by saying that perhaps we can prevent the emergence of lethal autonomous weapon systems. At least looking at nukes, I just hope we are able to prevent it. But I also see some other similarities in the sense of lethal autonomous weapons systems, like we had with nuclear weapons a few decades ago, can lead to an arms race and can lead to more global insecurity and can also lead to warfare that's way out of control. 
So in that sense, I see some similarities between our work on nuclear weapons and our work on killer robots. For me as a person, I sometimes find it difficult, to be honest, to work on the issue of lethal autonomous weapon systems. Because as a campaigner, I was always extra motivated by going to places where horrible weapons were used. You speak to people, you see the impact. And together with victims and survivors and others, you do the best you can to regulate or sometimes prohibit certain uh, certain weapons. And as you said, with, with killer robots, and of course, depending on the definition, but let's say we don't see them yet being used on the battlefield, which is also more difficult, to be honest, as a campaigner. On the other hand, the stakes are so high and warfare can get so out of control if we don't try to... Uh, at least maintain a certain level of human control over certain parts of the use of weapon system, that it's, um, it's worth doing. This actually brings up one of my questions. The way we're approaching lethal autonomous weapons systems is to try to ban them before we see these horrible humanitarian consequences. So how does that change your approach? Is there other precedents that we've seen where something was banned before any negative effects could occur? It definitely has a an impact on approach, and I completely agree with what Miriam was just saying about the sort of experience of harm on the ground as often being a driver for work on these issues, both in terms of the evidence that supports action, but also I think in terms of individual people's motivation regarding why they're doing what they're doing. And I think the fact that this is a more future-orientated debate definitely creates some different sort of dynamics in relation to that that issue of to what extent there's an immediate humanitarian problem that's being addressed. But other weapon systems have been prohibited. Blinding laser weapons in the Convention on Conventional Weapons were prohibited at a point when there was a concern that the development of laser systems designed to blind people was going to become a feature of the battlefield. In terms of autonomous weapons, I think we already see significant levels of autonomy in certain weapon systems today. And again, I agree with Miriam in terms of recognition that certain definitional issues are very important in all of this. Definitional issues are also politically very significant. So I don't see the lack of definitions at this point of time as a problem. Rather, they create a bit more openness of the space for discussion and debate amongst different actors. So that's that's not necessarily a, a shortcoming. But already we have weapon technologies that rely substantially on sensors and then computers to identify targets and to respond to them. At present, they're relatively constrained in their scope of operations. Significantly, we see this on sort of missile defense systems on ships, but also elsewhere. And those systems may have substantial autonomy within the time period within which they're being activated by a a human. But they also are sort of operating within a fairly clearly defined operational space. And so So the implications of that autonomy are are being contained by the way in which they work and the way in which human control can still be exerted over them. I mean, coming back perhaps, I think, to the last part of your your question, I mean, one of the ways we've sought to orientate to this is by thinking about the concept of meaningful human control as a way of pushing the debate onto what are the elements of human control and human authority over weapon systems, decisions to use force and decisions about specifically when and where force will be applied? What are the human elements there that we feel it's important to retain? Because I think inevitably 
I'm wary of conceding any inevitability in these things because inevitability itself is something that's contested in these in these discussions. But I think you know we are going to see more and more autonomy within military operations in all sorts of different functions, in logistical functions, and in support functions, and in the, you know the the operation of certain systems. But in certain critical functions around how targets are identified and how force is applied and over what period of time, I think in those areas, we start to see potentially an erosion of, of a level of human, essentially moral engagement that, that is fundamentally important to retaining some potential for humanity in the context of conflict. So, so for us, I think some focus on defining that positive human space is perhaps useful in a context where different technologies may take many forms in the future and autonomy may present itself in many technological sort of manifestations, technological forms. And so having at least some some understanding and some shared understanding of what is the key human element that we, we want to retain, I think is probably a useful a useful starting point. I very much agree with Richard and, and that's also what makes this campaign slightly different than other disarmament campaigns. This is not so much about a weapon system, but this is about how do we control warfare and how do we actually maintain human control in the sense that it's actually a human deciding who is a legitimate target and who isn't. So it's this autonomy, because autonomy, of course, is a continuum, but it's this autonomy over the critical functions of select and and attack that we would like to maintain. And this campaign as is, of course, also with the nuclear weapons campaign, is also very much a campaign for parks that's driven by ethical motivation. So we have a lot of like legal arguments against lethal autonomous weapons. We have security arguments against lethal autonomous weapons, but it's mainly an ethical notion. Like, what do we as mankind want to preserve? And we believe that these kind of systems, where it's actually no longer a human, having the final say, who's a target and who isn't, goes against, well, it goes against human dignity and it, it outsources human control to systems that we think is not only extremely dangerous, but also highly, highly unethical. So it's, as a campaign, we constantly also try to speak about what do we actually want to maintain and how do you have a constructive discussion on what meaningful human control is in, in space and time And if states say, well, we're not that worried about that, well, then have a look at your current systems and the current, as we sometimes say, precursors and figure out why do you think that there is still meaningful human control within that systems and then build up a discussion on where you want to draw the line and how we can actually draw a line, be it by a legal treaty or in other ways. You mentioned autonomous systems are on a continuum and you mentioned drawing this line. I know one of the arguments that I've heard in favor of autonomous weapons is that they actually ideally make decisions better than humans and potentially reduce civilian casualties. I'm wondering, how do you address that argument? And is there a point on that spectrum where autonomy is beneficial? And if so, how do you know when it's crossed the line into not beneficial? Or do you prefer no autonomy in the weapon systems at all? Well, I've always been highly critical of states, industries, and other actors with a high belief in technological fixes. And I think you see that in this debate as well. So suddenly this, let's say, hypothetical weapons are able to come up with clean warfare. 
or to prevent civilian casualties? Well, we've had that debate with other weapon systems as well, where the technological possibilities were not, well, what they were promised to be as soon as they were used. And I also think it's a bit of an, uh, an unfair debate in a sense, because it's mainly from states with high developed industries who are most likely the ones who will be using some form of lethal autonomous weapons systems first. And as soon as you flip the question and you say like, well, you know, what if these kind of systems will be used against your soldiers or in your country? And it's done by the argument that it's actually more precise, et cetera, et cetera. Then suddenly you enter a whole different debate. And then suddenly other arguments, like, for example, moral arguments come into play. So I'm, I'm really highly skeptical of people who say like, well, it could actually be beneficial. But I'm not sure yeah. if you agree, Richard. Yeah, yeah, I do agree. I think and I think some skepticism is justifiable in this area as well. I mean, when we look back at other debates on weapons, the users of weapons who have asserted that these weapons should not be prohibited or that they were, you know, could be used perfectly acceptably. I've not generally taken the lead in gathering in a transparent form the data on who has actually been killed and injured by the weapons that they've used. So in the past, we've seen a bit of a deficit of accountability and sort of responsibility taking about civilian harm, if that's the issue that we're concerned about here. Uh, I would say in, in certain areas that's improved over recent years, and there has been a bit more of a focus on recognizing the need for casualty recording and casualty documentation, but there's definitely been some deficits there. But but in a way, it comes back to, I think, some of these, well, there's a number of issues. I mean, there's a there's a sort of dynamic of how we should orientate to this in general. I mean, whether we should take that sort of hypothetical assertion of sort of moral superiority of these systems, should we take that strongly or should we adopt a more cautionary, precautionary orientation to the development of such systems? And then I think there's a, a sort of moral issue, which I think it's a, a moral issue in all of this, which I don't know if I can always articulate quite what I'm feeling on this point, but I feel like the you know, the sort of assertions of goodies and baddies and our ability to label one from the other and to categorize people and things in society in such a accurate way is also itself somewhat illusory and something of a misunderstanding of the reality of perhaps conflict in a way in society. So I feel like any claims that we can somehow perfect violence in a way where it can be just distributed by machinery to those who deserve to receive it and that there's no tension or moral hazard in that, I think uh, is extremely dangerous as an underpinning concept, essentially, because in the end, we're talking about embedding categorizations of people and things within a sort of micro bureaucracy of algorithms and, and labels. And in society as, as a whole, when we've seen that sort of bureaucratization of violence in the past over the last 100 years or so, it's generally represented an extremely negative relationship of the state to a wider population. And there's a, there's a fundamental arrogance, I think, in assuming that we can somehow code at one period of time a structure of identification of people that can reduce them to these targets, non-targets, labels quite that simplistically. So, I mean, all of this within a context where, you know, this isn't to say that some degrees of computer engagement in these functions can't be managed reasonably. 
But as a whole, the sort of assertions that autonomous weapons will be better than humans, I think it's a very dangerous notion. And I think perhaps also misses a point that violence in society is a human problem and it needs to continue to be messy to some extent if we're going to recognize it as a problem and, well, not get into such a authoritarian, ultimately, structure that we forget what violence really means, which is a messy moral failing, I think. Okay. I'd like to bring this back to the United Nations discussion. What is the process right now for getting lethal autonomous weapon systems banned? Where are we? What is the UN considering? Are talks still going on? I think the last time I checked the UN website, they were most recently updated from 2015. Yeah, I'm not sure about the website, but I, uh, I think it's fair to say that when we started uh, the international campaign to stop killer robots, and it was officially launched in London in April 2013, if I'm not mistaken, And that's immediately, and of course, we build up on the knowledge and the campaign and the work that was done by others, like the International Committee on Robot Arms Control and others. But when we launched the campaign in 2013, it immediately gave a push to the international discussion, including the one on the Human Rights Council and within the Convention on Conventional uh, Weapons in, uh, in Geneva. And so we saw a lot of debates there in 2013 already and in 14 and 15, where apparently the UN website stopped. But there has been some more discussions uh, in the CCW and the last one was in April. So a lot of discussions took place, intense discussions, sometimes a whole week of lengthy debates on definitions, but also on legal problems, on ethical concerns but it still did not lead to the start of a negotiation process. But at the last CCW meeting, it was decided that a group of governmental experts should start within the CCW to look at these type of weapons, which was applauded by many states and also by our campaign, because within the CCW framework, we saw before that the GGE is kind of like the portal to regulation or a ban or, or let's say an additional protocol. But unfortunately, the GGE that was planned to be held in August this year in Geneva has been cancelled because not every UN state or CCW high contracting partner paid their dues. So due to financial issues, that GGE has been cancelled in, in August. So we're in a bit of a silent mode right now. Well, if you look at the technology, technological side, There is no silent modus there. It's just continuing. So it's high time that we actually have either a GGE within the CCW to discuss about practical measures to be taken or that we have more debate in the Human Rights Council or perhaps have a debate within the UN General Assembly. So yes, it's a bit of a slow timing at the moment when it comes to killer robots in the UN. Yeah, and I mean, Miriam and I have both worked around the CCW for quite a long period of time. And I think it's probably also important to recognize that the CCW works on an interpretation of consensus that means that even if it is actually having the meetings that it has agreed to have, which at present we're not, within those meetings, more or less any state can block the adoption of of an agenda for more developed future work. So you're always rather at the mercy of those states that wish to progress at the slowest pace. So I mean, it feels in this situation, being frank, that discussions will, I think, 
continue in the CCW, but really progressive work would benefit from the convening of some meetings amongst states who are interested in thinking constructively about responses to the concerns that have been raised about autonomous weapons, sort of a, perhaps a mixture of states that are interested in taking a progressive position and international organizations who've been expressing concerns about this and civil society. And if some meetings could be brought together of those actors under some aegis or other, it doesn't need to be uh, within a formal process, but at least that sort of meeting would allow for an exchange of views, working towards a sort of constructive way forward that could start to build alliances and build relationships and partnerships that in all of our previous work on weapons prohibitions have been fundamental. So in a way, I think the development of that kind of forum for discussion, not to say it has to be a set of meetings that develop their own treaty outside of the CCW, which of course has happened on other on other issues. But but to start with just some freestanding meetings that convene progressively minded actors and start to develop a more constructive and forward-looking mode of work, I think that would at least help us when we come back into more detailed CCW discussions, start to get a bit of momentum amongst a community in that context that could shape the political landscape. So I guess from my side, that would seem to be the most the most productive next step that could be taken is in parallel to the CCW to have a sort of progressive meeting of states, international organizations and civil society and start to think in real practical terms about how responses to this issue could be could be formulated. And, and maybe my impatience on this issue make me sound a bit negative, but uh, that doesn't mean that there's no progress. I mean, we have by now 19 states who called for a ban. We have more than 70 states within the CCW framework discussing this issue. And, and some of them came up with national policy. So it's, I mean, certain things have happened. And we know also from other treaties that you need these kind of building blocks. I mean, you need like an international coalition as we have right now with more and more campaigns worldwide. You need actors like the ICRC who took this issue on board. You need a couple of states who actually want to take the issue forward. Well, we're not there yet, but we see some progress there. But you also need, and I think that's that's very welcome when it comes to the kill robots debate, you need active citizens and you need active academics. So I'm really pleased with the work of the Future of Life, for example, but also the work of other academics on this issue. And I think that's also perhaps a little bit different than with some of the other disarmament campaigns. We need the academics and we need people from various businesses, companies to be involved as well. And all of these building plugs somehow and hopefully sooner than later need to end up in a treaty. And a treaty which is also relevant or perhaps even several treaties because it should be relevant both for human rights law as well as for international humanitarian law. Because we're also speaking about systems that can be used by uh, by policing. So it's it's a bit of a gap that we feel right now, or at least we're disappointed that the August Group of Governmental Expert Meetings was cancelled. But it doesn't mean that there is no progress yet. I just wanted to jump in on Miriam's comments there, where she she name checked future of life in relation to this and. Just thinking about these sort of community building functions of engaging scientists and roboticists and AI practitioners around these themes. And it's one of the challenges sometimes that the issues around weapons and conflict can sometimes be 
treated as very separated off from other parts of society. But but I think it, it is significant that the sorts of decisions that get made about the limits essentially of a sort of AI-driven decision-making about life and death in the context of weapons could well have implications in the future regarding how expectations and discussions get set elsewhere. And it seems like the sort of moral challenges that are being debated in that context around weapons and violence do need the engagement of people who may be concerned about these questions as they will present themselves in other parts of society in the future, because some of the same sort of moral questions will will no doubt come to the fore in other contexts around, I don't know, healthcare or elsewhere. And as a society, we probably need to to keep that overview of how these debates are playing out in different sections. And one of the things I think that we've seen from that engagement of a wider sort of AI practitioner, scientific community in this issue around weapon systems is also sort of useful bridge building exercise across these different, uh, I wanted to use the word silos only because it's the word that gets used, but, uh, but across these different sort of social and practitioner demarcations. We are certainly trying to do what we can to get more people involved and active. Um, and along those lines, regarding both these autonomous weapon systems and nuclear weapons, what is it that you don't think people seem to fully appreciate that would be helpful for them to understand? I guess in general, what do you think is most important for people to understand about nuclear weapons and for autonomous weapon systems? So for me, what is important that people start to realize, and I think we're slowly getting there actually, is that we're speaking about collective security and about global security. And so it's no longer a question, if it has ever been a question, that if a state has, let's say, a nuclear weapon, it makes its citizens more safe. It's, it's on the contrary. I mean, these weapons, be it nuclear weapons or be it autonomous weapon systems, will have a global impact. And my security is related to your security. So weapon systems that are used in this part will have an impact not only on other parts of the world, but also to me. So for me, both systems in that sense go way beyond the discussion about speaking about weapon systems. It's about what kind of world and society that we want to live in. And none of these, like not killer robots, not nuclear weapons, are an answer to any of the threats that we face right now, be it climate change, be it, if you want to use that frame, terrorism. So it's it's not an answer. It's only adding more fuel to an already dangerous world. Yeah, I think I feel very similarly, really. I mean, on, on nuclear weapons, it seems like over the last couple of decades, they've somehow become a very abstract, rather distant issue. And I think on that side, simple recognition of the real scale of humanitarian harm that the use of a nuclear weapon would cause is the most substantial thing. The, you know, the potential for hundreds of thousands killed and injured, a sort of overwhelming effect that can't really adequately be responded to in any humanitarian terms at a minimum. I mean, that's simply from one nuclear weapon and obviously a long-term effect in terms of contamination. And the fact that, that that is what's really being talked about when people, you know, in our country, in the UK, when if our prime minister asserts confidently that they would be, you know, confident about pushing the butter to fire nuclear weapons, they're essentially talking about incinerating hundreds of thousands of normal people, probably in a foreign country. We presume that, right? But But still ultimately recognizable normal people. And the idea that that can be approached in some ways sort of glibly or confidently at all is, is, I think, very disturbing, especially in a context where there's been numerous near misses and 
accidents and incidents and nuclear weapons falling off planes and the like. And if we think that we can actually have a sustainable sense of security based on a framework of threatening each other with that level of harm and expecting that at, you know, at no point will something go wrong, then I think it's completely, it's a complete illusion, essentially. And then, yeah, really, on the autonomous weapons in line with Miriam's point, I think it is about what sort of society do we want to live in? And how much are we prepared to hand over to computers and machines? And set against that, how much are we prepared to take on ourselves in terms of taking responsibility for for engagement in our societies and sort of political engagement and organizing our relationships with each other as, as people in a way that continues to develop our society positively rather than us simply becoming the recipients of processes handed out by algorithmic systems. And I think uh, handing more and more violence over to such processes does not augur well for our societal development. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. It's been really informative and I have enjoyed talking with you both. Thanks, Ariel. Well, thank you, Ariel. To learn more, visit futureoflife.org.